this is the Marketing for Learning podcast, the only podcast in the world that's guaranteed to increase your knowledge, skills, and capabilities when it comes to marketing for learning. Plus, there's a gratuitous amount of pineapples. You're welcome. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Marketing for Learning podcast and our last podcast of 2023. What a year. We have had a phenomenal year. We are on such a high. We've won awards. We've had fun. We've worked with so many wonderful people and we've recorded a lot of episodes for you. So I thought I'd do something a little bit different. And I'll be honest, I thought this was doing something a little bit lazy, but it turns out this has actually been way harder than recording a normal podcast for you. But hey, I'm sticking with it. I have picked out our 12 most popular podcasts that we have recorded this year. And I'm going to share with you the top key takeaways from each of them throughout this episode. They're not in order of their popularity. Because putting them in the order that I have tells a really wonderful story and might provide you some actionable insights, things you can take away, things you can apply in 2024 to your L&D function. So I'm going to stop whittling on now and we're going to dive straight into the first podcast episode that ranked in our top 12 and that is the taster for our marketing for L&D program with the LPI. And often our solutions to these challenges are, okay, we have an engagement problem. It must be that our learning isn't as modern as it should be, or, oh, it's our learning platform. People can't navigate it. It's clunky. It's not the most modern LXD, HCML, whatever new acronyms are coming out on the market. We are always looking at tech to solve the problems with our employee engagement. But I put it to you guys that maybe we should consider the fact that perhaps the technology isn't actually at the root cause of many of our learning challenges, not just employee engagement. Um, But to me, the major issue that we contend with, you know, 60% of you guys just told me that you've lost some of your budget this year. That probably means that your C-suite, the board, your senior leadership are watching you. You're probably under more scrutiny than normal because your budgets have been cut. We're in a recession. Things are hard for us. But what's caused that loss of budget? Well, to me, maybe we're not getting the impact from our learning. We're not being able to show the value of that. We're not getting changes in performance and behavior. The learning culture isn't where the organization wants it to be. What's causing that? Well, employees aren't engaged. You know, this is what my clients say to me time and time again. My employees are not engaged. Why? Well, nobody's really communicating with them. They don't actually know that learning exists. And they often don't understand the value of learning in a way that resonates with them. I argue that the core and the root cause of many of our core issues in L&D stem from a lack of awareness in learning. Okay, our next episode of our 12 episodes of Christmas is a one-woman debate 
but I did after attending one of the uh, learning live networking events when the guy from LinkedIn who shared really phenomenal insights didn't circle marketing as a human skill and they kind of got my back up a little bit. Uh, so listen in to understand why I think marketing is absolutely a human skill. So before we get started, let's actually clarify what we mean by human skills. Human skills are non-technical skills that you aren't necessarily taught in traditional education. So teamwork, creative thinking, mindfulness, self-awareness, innovation, creativity, those kind of things. They are the skills that are innate. They're things that are just inside us. And also they make us relate to other humans on a much better level. At its core, marketing is about building relationships. And that in itself is a human skill. You need to understand the pain points, challenges, wants, needs, fears of your target audience if you're ever going to get their butts moving. How are you helping them achieve that goal? Without having this deep empathy and understanding of your audience, you're not going to get very far. The second human skill that you can't be a marketer without is impeccable communication skills. Communication is fundamental to marketing. They just go hand in hand. But having that ability to communicate with so many different people in so many different ways, it is a human skill. It is something that is inside us. It's a soft skill, you might say. Those best marketers know how to communicate with empathy, compassion, excitement, the right emotion and the right vibe for that moment in time. And the last human skill I want to talk about today that is so, so important in marketing is creative thinking. Creativity is the backbone of the marketing industry. But it's not just about coming out with really catchy adverts or witty slogans or anything like that. It's also about creative thinking, coming up problems from a different angle, thinking outside of the box, trying to find new solutions to age-old problems. Those kind of innovative ideas don't just come from nowhere. They come from the mind of someone who's truly got a creative mindset and thinks creatively. I know every l and I've ever met has these skills already, but it's time they were unlocked. If you want to make marketing for learning work in your organization, think about the human skills you already have and how you can apply them in everything you do, particularly when you're marketing your learning interventions. Okay, next up is a podcast I recorded a few months ago um, off the back of attending How Now's L&D Disrupt, Disrupt? I can never say that, uh, live event in London. And it's all about the importance of people and our target audiences as L&Ders that are finally embracing marketing for learning. Okay, takeaway number one is really, really simple. 
People, people, people. Everything we do in L&D comes back to people. And I think sometimes we forget that. We forget that we should have our target audience at the heart of everything we do. We are pulled from pillar to post. We've got the C-suite arts in for one thing, managers in the business arts in for another. And at the bottom of it all is our people saying, hey, can somebody look at me? In all of the conversations I had, whether that was about AI, whether it was about um, new developments, whether it was about whether we call ourselves L&D or not, everything came back to the people at the heart of it came back to our target audience. We talk about this so much at Mass. In fact, our whole first session on the Marketing for L&D Masterclass is about mindset and about customer centricity. And I think L&D would do a really good job at honing that skill of customer centricity a little bit more. Putting our people at the heart of everything we do will change the narrative. It will change the way we're talking to people. You might be thinking, can I already do that? This is such a rubbish takeaway. But the amount of people I spoke to last week that were humble enough to say, you know what, I think I've taken my eye off the ball there. I think I've I've kind of slipped into that old narrative. So remind yourself that your audience is the most important person in the room. Remind yourself that you need to have them at the heart of everything you do. And just sense check the work you're doing. Are you really championing your target audience and if not stop pivot and put them at the heart all right the next podcast episode is way more tactical and practical we're talking about personas we have spoken so much about personas in the last year because they are that important to your marketing for learning journey so in this clip i'm going to explain to you why they're so important. I truly believe learner personas are the backbone of really phenomenal marketing for learning. Because learner personas allow us to improve targeting. It helps us make the marketing actually effective and resonate and answer the what's in it for me. It will allow us to personalize the marketing. So what resonates with you might not resonate with me and vice versa. So it allows us to personalise our marketing so that we can actually get butts moving. And it allows us to have a meaningful conversation with people. All too often in L&D, we're just shoving out information and hoping for the best. But with personas, we can actually send really targeted, really impactful communications to our people. But with so much data in L&D, why on earth do we need personas? We know their job title. We know what they're doing. We know their job role. We know a lot about them. So if we can segment on that and their demographics, their age and all things like that, why isn't that good enough? And this is an example that you may have seen us talk about before. King Charles and Ozzy Osbourne. They could not be more different, could they? But demographically, they're almost identical. They're both male. They were both born in 1948. They were raised in the UK, they've both been married twice, they both both live in castles, and they're both wealthy and famous. King Charles, Ozzy Osbourne, very different people, aren't they? Their intrinsic motivations in life are probably 
incredibly different. And that's a case in point about why we don't just target on demographics. Because if we do, we'll end up sending both of these people the same message and it's not really going to resonate that well with either of them. All right, we talk a lot about branding here at Mass and some people are like, oh, but I don't have a brand because they don't have a logo or a colour scheme or anything like that. But you do have a learning brand and you should have a learning brand promise. Check out this clip to understand why. Things first, what is a brand promise? A brand promise is a pledge you're making to your target audience. So to your consumers, your customers, your clients, for you guys, your learners, for want of a better word. What are you promising them that you are going to deliver to them? You are setting an expectation on yourself with your brand promise. What kind of experience can your people expect to be experiencing (laughs) when they're interacting with you? What can they expect from you? What standard are you going to hold yourself to? That is what your brand promise is. Essentially, for L&D, a brand promise defines who you are as a learning function. You're not the learning and development team. You're a team that wants to fulfill X brand promise. Brand promises aren't necessarily something that you'll ever see in marketing. Sometimes you do. Some brands do externally put their brand promise out there in their ads and such like. But oftentimes a brand promise is something that's quite internal. You might find it on websites when you dig through. But really, it's something to keep marketing teams and organizations as a whole on track and true to what the organization values. And to go alongside your L&D brand promise, you need an L&D positioning statement. And the next episode in our 12 episodes of Christmas is going to help you do just that. You can probably see now that creating a positioning statement takes a fair bit of work, I will admit. But getting it right really unifies exactly what the purpose is behind your team. And it will influence absolutely everything you do in your L&D team, I promise. A positioning statement really holds us accountable. It not only tells us what we're promising, which is open to interpretation, it clearly defines the what. What are we going to do as a team? I really, really encourage anybody in L&D to create a positioning statement for their team. You are offering a service to your people that they might be able to find elsewhere. They might find themselves on things like LinkedIn Learning or any of the external learning platforms that are in in our industry. But you want them to engage with content that you've created for them or curated for them. And your positioning statement will help tailor all of your marketing messaging, all of your communication, your visual design, your branding, everything. Your positioning statement will solidify everything you're doing as a team. So take some time this week, try to create your positioning statement, use a template from HubSpot, create something that your team can be proud to strive towards. 
All right, guys, we are halfway through our 12 episodes of Christmas. Um, I'm really, really trying to resist the urge to sing the song that has We're Halfway There in the lyrics. I'm sorry if it's now an earworm, but at least you didn't have to listen to me sing it. The next episode is all about conditioning and psychology in marketing and advertising. And Ash gives some great tips on how we can apply that in a learning function. So Ivan Pavlov was around in 1904, believe it or not, and he was actually a Nobel Prize winner for his work on digestive processes, riveting. But while he was actually doing that work around the Nobel Prize, he started to note that his canine subjects would begin to salivate when an assistant would enter the room. So when they would come into the room to start to provide food or snacks or treats uh, to monitor the digestion of the dogs, the dogs were basically anticipating the snack and then therefore they would salivate accordingly. For him, salivation was a reflexive process, which means that it occurs automatically in response to a specific stimulus and it's not under conscious control, much like our heart beating. But Pavlov actually noted that the dogs that he was studying would often begin to salivate even when there wasn't food or a smell they would begin to salivate just when someone came into the room. The theory behind this is essentially that the salivation is a learned process. It is classical conditioning. So classic conditioning is quite a fascinating phenomenon that is used in advertising to this day. What we're essentially trying to do is connect with our audiences in an autonomic way and create a physiological response. And the reason I want to talk to you guys about classical conditioning is not because I want to encourage you to essentially brainwash your learners or, you know, condition them into doing certain things. But I do think there are clever ways that we can transfer the idea of searching and actively pursuing learning in an organization from one that is fully conscious to one that has move to a little bit more of a subconscious behavior. We talk a lot about how we can use brands and visual markers to create more object permanence in our learners' brains. We talk a lot about how we can reach people and connect with them on an emotional level through campaigns, through your imagery and your copywriting, how you can be more evocative, how you can influence, how you can persuade. But also have a think about how you can actually get people to have a subtle response to your communications or your learning in the ways that Coke and Marks and Spencers have. Maybe that means if they see your logo or they see your brand, they immediately associate it with learning. If they've had positive experiences, that may well be enough to prompt a desire to go and find a solution to a problem they have. Alrighty then, so for our next episode, we have the first of a few interviews and guest speakers on the podcast, and this one was with Miriam Nealon, and she's talking all about evidence-based learning design, and why that's so important. So obviously you've mentioned evidence-informed learning design a few times. Can you explain a little bit more to me what that is and how that kind of deviates from maybe the more traditional instructional design approaches that have existed? 
let me start by explaining what it is. So it has three types of evidence that you use to inform design decisions. So it would be your experience and expertise. It would be uh, systems data and stakeholders. And the third pillar would be uh, evidence from the learning sciences. So there's three different types of evidence that you would use to make decisions as you go. It's a difference from evidence-based in the sense that Evidence-based is, is really grounded in the medical world. So it's really about using really high uh, quality evidence to make decisions for individual patients. So in our world, that's a bit different because you always have to be quite careful how you interpret evidence, especially from the sciences, because it's a bit softer. I mean, it's better than nothing. So you mm. still need to use it, but you always have to kind of like test and evaluate in your specific context. You ask how it's different from traditional instructional design. Um, I think traditional instructional design also gathers evidence, for example, by working with subject matter experts and gather evidence around, you know, what needs to be learned, what does that look like? Uh, I don't know to what extent it actually triggers people to use the evidence that we have from the learning sciences. So, I mean, instructional design is more like a, process right yeah. and you use the evidence within the process to make decisions so yeah it's not necessarily something different it's more at a different level so our next episode is another guest episode and this time is with the wonderful paula hughes friend and fan of the podcast but friend first and foremost Ash and I absolutely loved this chat with Paula and if you haven't listened to the full episode I'd recommend going back and listening to it. It's absolutely littered with gems of insights from Paula. In this clip we're talking about UX design and how it's so closely linked to marketing and how they both have such an impact on the overall learning experience. Enjoy. what UX design really is and how it plays a part in both learning and marketing. Yeah, so um, it is literally just putting the user at the heart of everything that you're doing, making sure that what you're asking them to do at certain points or how you're nudging them towards things actually makes sense to them from their point of view, especially in a workplace L&D capacity. Sometimes you feel as if you're designing stuff for everybody but the person that's on the receiving end of it. So stepping into UX design recently has enabled me to just say the things that I've always wanted to say, which is, yeah, it makes sense to you, but will it make sense to them? Will they care? That sort of thing. Yeah. And just like you say, Ash, mapping stuff out, like making sure that you know what all your trigger points are, like where you're driving people to, where they're coming from, what noise is round about it, making sure that they're focusing on the right things at the right time. Um, And then acknowledging that there's a happy path and an unhappy path. And then when they drop into an unhappy path in a process or a journey, how do we get them back on track? So it's just, yeah, it's a lot of thinking and exploring human behaviour is what I would say, which is probably the most interesting part of it, because the humans are your biggest variable and they never do what you expect them to do. So, yeah, you've just got to prepare for it and embrace it because that's what makes us human and interesting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think for me, UX design is all about that championing the end user, the target audience. So in our case, most of our listeners' case, we'll be thinking about our learners. 
And I love what you just said there about the happy path and the unhappy path, because so many people struggle to put themselves in that learner's shoes, don't they? They struggle to empathize really because we are so engrossed in our own world. Okay, if you've listened to all of the podcasts we've released this year, it's not going to be a surprise to you at all that this one took the top spot. This is Ash's interview with Nick Shackleton-Jones. They had a phenomenal chat about all things from storytelling to human behaviours and so much more. And in this clip, Nick highlights one of the biggest flaws with L&D teams. Um, And I'm sure it's something you can all relate to. I was thinking about this this morning. I was thinking... It's just learning and development has just been so chronically bereft of any kind of marketing that it's a miracle that we're still kind of in employment. And I was thinking, well, how how would I explain that? And I thought, well, imagine that you and I, Ashley, we create a new product and it's the Dingle Goober 3000, let's say, for the sake of argument. And this does nothing for any of the customers. And we know this because we haven't bothered to talk to any of them. We've done no market research. We've done no audience analysis. We've developed no personas. We're just going to create the Dingle Goober 3000 because it's easy for us and we want to turn a profit, right? And then we create this thing and then we push it out to people. How do we do that? Is it a multi-channel marketing strategy? It's getting, no, we send them an email. We say, hit them with an email, say, <laughs> click here. Here's a link to the Dingle Goober 3000. And because we haven't actually built a relationship with most of the people on that email list, you know, it just looks like spam. There's a kind of a few curious people, maybe 15% of that massive list who actually think, oh, what the heck is that? I'll click on that link and they click on it. And you might think they, they're seamlessly moved into an e-commerce platform. No, they encounter some grotesque system that looks like it's from the year 2000. And they're forced to watch a dreadful video was featuring you and I talking about how important this product is to us. And then they, they're able to sign up and register for it. Um, uh, and and that you might leave you wondering, well, what is the Dingle Goober 3000? Oh, it's a PowerPoint presentation with a quiz at the end. <laughs> it's like, how could that, in what world could that kind of work as a product? If you, if you actually adopted like a product management kind of mindset, which incorporates, you know, marketing as, as part of how you manage a product, it's just bizarre. This is kind of like the worst way to actually develop and market and improve a product. But the only reason we do it is, of course, because that's kind of school. You know, nobody, Mm. it's not considered in that way. Your teachers never marketed anything to you. It was just kind of sit down, shut up, here's the curriculum. And so we sort of do that. And that's fine if all you want to do is compliance. But a lot of people in L&D want to do more than compliance. They don't just run a compliance training where it's click on this and complete the damn module because, you know, we can tell you what to do. Well, okay. I mean, it's a living, right? But that's not what we aspire to. The next clip is from our first ever live podcast recording. It was such a nerve-wracking event, (laughs) but it was brilliant. And we had two phenomenal guests, Ed and Serena, on the pod. And we were talking all about the employee value proposition and where L&D stands in that. So this clip gives you a really brief overview of all the good stuff we spoke about in that live session. What can L&D actually do to positively contribute to a good EVP or an impactful EVP? So I, I have my views based on the, the, the academy and, and, and my role and the 
biggest thing I'll say is its connection to your business strategy. If I can prove why I exist and how it impacts the wider organization and how you at an individual level, your development and your contribution and your career contributes to ultimately a company being successful, that's my biggest contribution to, to the EVP. I find it very strange when, I hate that phrase, we ought to be connected to the business more. I mean, what the hell are you building for if you're not connected to your business? Um, and if you are connected to the business, then you'll understand why the business has this brand. You'll understand how the business shows value to its shareholders, to its board, and then how what you're doing connects to that. But how connected were we to the entire part of the people strategy, the brand strategy, and the organization business strategy in order to know those answers so that when people hit us, we know what we'll do that will take our learning strategy forward. So that would be for me the biggest connector. Yeah, <laughs> I've worked in L&D for 27 years and we always seem to be in an existential crisis trying to justify our existence. So um, it's nice to see people being more proactive uh, and to further to your point, Serena, to have that interoperability with the other departments to understand how they work. On a more philosophical point of view, in terms of how L&D can kind of add value in employer branding. There's two quotes that I really like. One was in The Economist saying lifelong learning is an economic imperative. So it's not a luxurious potential thing that we can do. It's a necessity now. And the other quote is it was described as the ultimate pension, lifelong learning. I think in a fast moving world now, L&D is probably the best way to attract great people um, and show that you are a people focused business. We know that the number one challenge for CLOs is a learning culture. So we need to get that right, which includes giving people the freedom to learn and all of the psychological safety stuff. But one in five workers is likely to switch employers within a year. That's the PwC report. That's a lot. So what happens in those organizations is you will have a shrinking and sometimes you know ill-equipped talent pool. So Obviously, it's a very competitive environment now, and having a strong employee value proposition will ensure you keep those people and you attract the good ones. And last, but by no means least, it would not be a podcast episode in 2023 without mentioning two little letters that mean so much to all of us right now, and that's AI. In this clip, Ash is joined by AI expert Egler to talk all things AI and how it will impact L&D. So if you haven't listened to the full web, go back and listen to it. But this clip will give you a taster. If you are using, if you're doing anything that is company specific, that potentially involves company specific information and that again, gets us back to a strategic decision. And so far, as of September 2023, quite a lot of organizations are putting a pause on using generative AI in learning for that reason. Yeah, I can see 
that being an incredibly large blocker to adoption, that we're operating in a landscape where learning functions aren't even able to get business data to measure performance impact and correlate that to business bottom lines from a learning perspective. So somehow getting the organization to business-wide adopt Gen AI, I think we're a far stretch away from that. I think there's smaller fish to fry rather than bigger fish to fry and bigger problems. And when you were chatting about some of the things that you were saying earlier, I had a thought that kind of came to my mind and you you did answer it with the performance impact piece, but without running the risk of sounding completely obtuse and facetious about the whole thing, why on earth when there's so many barriers to access, when it's actually so difficult to get it to a place where it's of use to us in its present form, why would we use Gen AI? To my mind, I'm struggling to see how the benefits outweigh the investment on from a time and budget perspective. Do you have a, a different position on why we should use it, what it's going to do for us? I don't consider myself to be a champion of AI. I am mm. more of a person who thinks about exactly that. How do we make sure that AI is a net benefit for ourselves, for organizations, the society, and so on? So I am, yeah, I'm pretty much, that's my thinking as well. The thing is that AI is potentially so powerful. And again, maybe not this month, although it is pretty powerful right now, but three, six months from now, it's getting increasingly powerful. And if you have the skills or if someone else has the skills and creates some best practices, once you have that community of uh, of practice and, and use cases and so on, that's when the benefits might start outweighing the risk. So there you have it. Our 12 most popular episodes of 2023 with a really, really weak link to the fact it's Christmas and there's the 12 days of Christmas. And I don't know, I really love Christmas. If you're watching this, I apologize for the tacky Christmas cardigan, but I'm not actually that sorry. Um, I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you. Thank you for all of your listens this year, all of your messages, all of your comments, all of your kind words. We genuinely love recording this podcast. Um, It's definitely a passion project for both Ashley and I. um, And we will always make the time to record episodes for you guys. So as I said at the start of the podcast, this is our final episode of the year. Don't worry, we have incredible episodes already lined up for you, including one guest host of the podcast. Um, It was a really phenomenal chat and I know you guys are going to love it. That's going to come out early January and start your 2024 off in the right way with your marketing for learning hats on. Um, I want to take this opportunity to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I will see you all in January 2024. See you later, guys. (laughs) 